Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today we are kicking off a new sermon series, uh, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little hesitant to start this. Um, because we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, I, I joked with you all, uh, but you know, the ch- all of the church studies, they always put out these big church studies, and all of the church studies say that attendance for churches always drops in the summertime, right? So people don't come to church because they have vacation plans and they have all that stuff, and so I am, now name it and claim it gospel here, I am naming and claiming that we are not going to suffer that here at the gospel house. How you like that? Now, I don't believe in naming and claim it gospel, so if, don't worry if your heart's fluttering a little bit like, oh gosh, where have we gone? But what that does is that means I'm putting the onus on you. You, you all got to step up. <laughs> I have to be here every week, right? So I, I don't have a choice. If I don't show up, the doors don't get unlocked, you don't get in, you know, all that stuff. But we've got to show up, and we talked about this a little bit last week, right? We, we, we really have to get to a point in our walk with Jesus where we're unsettled with how laissez-faire the world tells us we can be, right? Because the world tells us that if we show up to church two Sundays out of the month, that's 50% of the time, you are considered a regular attender, right? Some of you, this is repeat. I talked about all this stuff last week. But, but guys, I, I was hesitant, and, and, and this is the human side, right? I was hesitant to start this sermon series in the summer because it's, it's an important sermon series. We're talking about the Beatitudes here. Y'all, this is the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, right? So that we have record of anyway. If this was the first sermon, and we're going to get into how important this is, but if this is the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like all of Jesus' words aren't important, right? Everything in the word of God is just as important as the next. But, but this is the message that Jesus came to us with. This was his first sermon, his first major teaching. And so it's super vital that we as Christians, if we're going to learn from Jesus as our master, as our discipler, we've got to get this stuff down. And so there's hesitancy, right? Because if half the church is going to be gone, well, we don't want to start this major sermon series, and that's what a lot of churches do, right? They take the summer easy, they back it off, they have, well, we'll bring in, you know, we'll let all the youth kids come up and preach during the summer because they need practice, right? And that's great, that's nice for them, but y'all, I don't want to take my foot off the gas because church studies say, you know, attendance is going to suffer, I don't want to take my foot off the gas because the world says, oh, well, people just don't read their Bibles anymore. The most you're going to get out of people is a half hour a week. The most you're going to get out of people these days is you got to preach 30 minutes, pastor, or you're going to lose people's attention. Baloney. I don't buy it. The answer is I, as the pastor, and you, as, as the hearers of the message, we've got to be more enamored with Jesus. Guys, if God can only hold my attention for 30 minutes, I'm not beholding the real God. Because the Bible says that there is going to come a day when God will hold our attention for all of eternity and we won't be able to look away. 
and you want to tell me that I got to trim my message to 30 minutes because that's the attention span of the average American. I don't buy it. Yeah, true. I might lose some. (laughs) But for those of us who are truly enamored by God, who are truly just wrapped up in his presence, let's just sit in it, right? Let's just spend as much time in it as we possibly can, and let's not let the world dictate that to us. Let's put everything else on the back burner and run after God with the kind of zeal that Jesus Christ ran after God. Amen? So what that means is, y'all are going to show up on Sundays, right? Yeah, and if you can't show up, look, I get it, people go on vacation, right? You got stuff going on. Then we're going to plug in still. You're going to text and you're going to call the people in your church family. You're going to ask them what you missed. You're going to catch up with them. You're going to watch online. You're going to listen to the podcast. Technology is a great thing, y'all, but we cannot use technology as a crutch. These church, same church studies they've shown since COVID, you know, all the churches thought church numbers were just going to explode once COVID was over and everybody was flocking back to the churches. It didn't happen. Not at all. The exact opposite, in fact. Because people got so comfortable watching church at home, they stopped attending in person. But the word of God tells us, y'all, we cannot let church through a television screen be a substitute for in-person services. It won't work. God hasn't designed us that way. He's designed us to crave in-person connection. And so we've got to do that. We've got to do it. So if you have to miss, plug in, right? If you don't have to miss, plug in. Be here and let's plug in. We good? All right, so... Let's go. This is, like we said, this is the first sermon that Jesus ever preached. And the subject matter that Jesus starts with is what it means to be blessed. We talk about this a lot today, huh? This is super culturally popular, right? Hashtag the blessed life, right? We love it. But is it a blessing? Because if we're actually paying attention to the Beatitudes— if we actually go through and read what Jesus has to say and not just check off the Bible reading box, right? Oh, Matthew 5, done, right? Or the other thing, the dangerous thing we tend to do is we hyper-spiritualize everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes, I am poor in my spirit, Lord, so that I can be filled with more of your spirit, right? And we hyper-spiritualize it because anybody can be poor in spirit when you hyper-spiritualize things, right? But do we truly understand what Jesus is calling us to? I honestly think most of us don't want to understand what Jesus is calling us to. Because what Jesus calls blessing in our Western culture today, we really don't see as blessings. So we have a question mark, right? Because is it a blessing? These are some really strange things that Jesus calls blessed. And we'll see that today as we break it down three ways. We're going to do a little intro to the Beatitudes and look at them as a whole. And then each week we're going to break them down one by one and walk through what Jesus calls blessing. So today we look at this. Point number one, we look at what happens when God breaks his silence. Point number two, we look at the aim of the Beatitudes. And we really find that it's the aim of the entire Bible. And then point number three, we look at the ultimate blessing in all of the Beatitudes. So first point, when God breaks his silence. This, is, this all fits together so well. It's amazing when you walk in the Spirit how well things fit together, right? 
So we're, I was talking with Stephanie this morning before she read the scripture verse, and she was telling me that, you know, it's, it's impactful for her that she's coming up here and reading the Beatitudes because that's something God's been laying on her heart recently. But even just these two points, this is literally what we ended on last week, right? We talked about Elijah, and we talked about the still, small voice of the Lord, but how in Hebrew, that still, small voice, if you look at the literal Hebrew translation of those, it translates better as a gentle or peaceful silence, And so God desires to speak to us through silence. The problem with most of us is we don't like to be silent, do we? And we don't like to sit in silence. So today we pick that right back up and we talk about when God breaks that silence. What happens? Because what happens here, what Jesus is doing in this Sermon on the Mount is he is breaking a period of 400 years of silence historically speaking, now I'm, I'm going to break down this history. Those of you who know me, you know how painful this sermon is for me because I hate history. Absolutely hate it. Like hated it in school, hate it now. I hate it. But it is super important that we do this, y'all, because there's, there's actually this really great quote. My father-in-law loves this quote. It's from How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. But it says that the Bible can never mean today what it never meant back then, Right? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And the problem we have today is we take scripture verses and we only ask the question, what does this mean to you all today, church? How do we break this down? And so we get, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we get it on athletic shoes and sneakers and shorts and because I can win NBA championships when God... That's not what Paul meant though, right? Paul didn't even have that in his mind when he wrote that verse. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so we've got to break down historically what's going on so that we can understand. Now look, can God use these Bible passages and convict you of things today and move you to things, you know, whether you should send your kids to public school or homeschool them? Yes, he can use those individual verses, but we can't take them out of context and make them mean something that they never meant, right? So we got to do a little bit of history here. So, God breaks his silence here. There's a period of 400 years. 400 years between the Old Testament, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and the events of the New Testament. 400 years. Now, everybody calls that the intertestamental period. That's what everyone calls it. Some people call it the 400 years of silence. That sounds kind of dark, doesn't it? The reason some people call it that is because in those 400 years, there were no recorded prophecies that God gave to his people, okay? There were books written, all right? We've talked about this a little bit, okay? There were books written. They're contained in a collection called the Apocrypha. Um, If you want, you can look it up. You can check out those books. Some people are like adamantly against the Apocrypha, like no, Satan's work, okay? Here's the deal with the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of writings of books that were written during this intertestamental period. And so these things were written. It is very important to note as Christians, as Protestant Christians, they are not in our Bible, okay? They are not in there for a reason. The early church fathers, they examined these books and they decided that there was enough pause, there was enough hesitancy, there were things with each of these books that made them illegitimate enough to not include in our canon of scripture, okay? It's also important to note, it was not just Christian people who did this. It wasn't the early Christian church who were the only ones. The early Jewish church did the same thing. 
You have, there are sects of Christianity, S-E-C-T-S, sects of Christianity that, that embrace these books, that put these books in their canon, and they use these, the teachings within these books to dictate doctrine and all of that stuff. We do not believe that stuff. So if you want to go and read this stuff, have at it. You can go get yourself a copy of the Apocrypha. I think I have it at just about every public library around. You can get it for free. You can probably look it up on Google, and they'll give you a free copy of it. Read it. Have at it. Because the early church fathers are, are on record as saying, you can look all of this stuff up, these books are historically accurate. These books are historically relevant, which means the things that are written about, you know, you can, you can yes, these things happened, but they do not hold the same spiritual authority that the Bible does. They do not hold the same spiritual authority. They do not fall under that category of inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so when you read these things, it's just like if I go out and read a Tim Keller book or a Mark Batterson book or who's your favorite author, you know, any of these books, you can read it and they have great things to say, but it all falls under the authority of the word of God, right? So if you want to read these books, go for it. But remember, it falls under the authority of our scripture, of this scripture, okay? So it's not necessarily, there, there were things happening. There, God was moving. God was doing stuff. There are events that are recorded for the Jewish people during these 400 years because, we know this, right? Just because God's not speaking doesn't mean he's not working, right? We sing about it. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working, right? We sing it, but do we believe it? Because we sing a lot of stuff on Sunday's church that we don't necessarily live like we believe, right? Oh, we need to do better at that. But 400 years, 400 years go by and nothing going on. There's no prophecies being written, no, n- nothing. The last book that we get, the last prophecy we get in the Old Testament is a prophecy spoken through the prophet Malachi. And if we're doing a rough summary of the book of Malachi, it's a short one, you can go through it, it's only four chapters, I think, so you can go through it and read it relatively quickly, but here's, here's just a rough summary of the book of Malachi. God says to Israel, through the prophet Malachi, I love you, my chosen people Israel, but I require obedience, and you refuse to honor me. You abuse my temple. You offer me worthless sacrifices. And you give me the leftovers of your life. You absolutely refuse to give me your best. And when I try to correct you, you accuse me of being the one who is unjust. It's a pretty good recap of the book of Malachi. It's a pretty good recap of the entire Old Testament. It's a pretty good recap of all of our lives, if we're being honest, right? We all have those moments where we refuse to give God our obedience, where we refuse to give God our best. The book of Malachi ends like this. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil, every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall. 
and you will crush the wicked underfoot, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. God seems to say, Israel, you don't want to listen. But there is coming a day where you will. And when you're ready, I will send Elijah, and he will prepare the way for me to deliver this message myself. And then God steps back and does exactly what he said he was going to do. 400 years of silence. Now in those 400 years, we've got to remember again, God is still working. And it doesn't always look like he's working, right? We talked about this last week with Elijah. Elijah gets to the mountain and God speaks to him and God tells Elijah to go and do things that no Jew would ever think God would tell a Jew to do, right? He tells him to go anoint a king of a pagan nation who has always been just obsessed with destroying Israel. Go anoint Hazael, king of Aram, right? You guys know what Hazael comes and does? Almost wipes out the entire Israelite people. And God says, go anoint him king. Then he says, go anoint Jehu king over Israel. Guys, these aren't good people, right? When you look at what Jehu did, Jehu wasn't like, okay, on fire for Jesus now, guys. Burn down the altars, let's start all over, right? These are people that God's not supposed to move through. And yet, God says to Elijah, these people are part of my plan for your best interest. See, in this intertestamental period, when Malachi is writing this prophecy, Israelites are under the rule of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's who's controlling you know, all of the land at this time. And if you really want something super interesting, go t- check out Jan- Daniel chapter 2, in chapter 7, because Daniel gets a message from God and he nails all this stuff before it ever happens. But Israel has returned to their land. They're back from captivity, but they are very much still under the rule of all of these other nations. Now what's nice is they have been allowed to rebuild the temple. They've been allowed to, to continue sacrificing. They're allowed to continue worshiping, to practice their religion. After the Persians, the Greeks come in and they conquer. There's a brief period during Greek rule where, where the, the Jews are, are forced out of the temple. The, the Greek ruler, emperor, whatever they were, he, he actually offers uh, sacrifices on the altar himself uh, and completely desecrates the temple, which causes the Jews to fight back. Uh, they go through like a really nasty war, and for a very brief time during the Greek reign, the Jews actually take control of Israel again. They have a very brief stint where they have control again, but that is very quickly taken back over, and then after the Greeks, the Romans take over. Why is all of this important? Why is it important that we know all about this stuff? Because God is still moving, even in the midst of these people who have absolutely zero interest in serving God. See, when the Greeks came in and conquered all of these nations, and they conquered, and if you go back and historically look, 
the Greeks conquered an absolutely enormous part of the world. Uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about history to say it was the largest empire ever, but I mean, it was absolutely huge, y'all. And so they, they conquer this enormous mass. But one of the things that the Greeks did when they would conquer a nation is they forced those people to learn to speak and read Greek. They would force everyone to learn Greek. That was a requirement. You had to take on Greek culture. You were not Jewish, just Jewish anymore. You could still do your Jewish things, but you also had to take on Greek culture. Why is this important? Because the New Testament was written in Greek, right? You're paving the way. The Greeks, without knowing it, are paving the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to move unhindered by language throughout this entire empire that they had established. We don't talk about that very much, do we? And then the Romans literally paved the way for the gospel. Because what the Romans did is they came in and they connected all of these empires with roads and with security on these roads. The Roman army, would, would make, they wanted to make commerce popular between all of these nations they were co- conquering. And so they made travel easy and safe. So the gospel, because of these two nations, you know, Jesus didn't teach in Greek. Jesus most likely taught in Aramaic or in Hebrew. But all of his recordings, all the recordings of his scripture that we have are in Greek. These nations are paving the way for the gospel. It is in this setting that Jesus Christ breaks 400 years of silence. God speaking to the people himself, delivering his own mail. And we see that in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and then he goes on to teach. Again, this is one of those things, we should have a lot more questions about this passage than we do. Just this, this one little verse too, Right? Because on the surface, and that's how most of us read our word, we try not to dig too deep, lest we find things that God's telling us to do we need to change. (laughs) But on the surface, Matthew looks like Captain Obvious, right? Have any of you ever tried to talk with your mouth closed? You don't project very well, do you? So if Jesus has this enormous crowd that he's trying to speak to, and he steps up and he says, nobody's going to hear him, right? So why in the world does Matthew include this seemingly obvious point? Jesus opened his mouth and spoke. Duh, that's what you do when you speak, right? But y'all, what we miss here is culturally understanding what this verse means. Because to the original hearers who are listening to this, who are reading this, When someone says that someone, anyone, opened his mouth and began to teach, what that meant is Jesus isn't just having a conversation. Jesus isn't just casually rolling in here and saying, all right, guys, sit on down. Let's let's have a chat, right? Pulls up the stool, a little fireside chat here. That's not what he's doing. Anytime you see these words in any ancient Greek text, it means, y'all, sit down and shut up because I'm going to talk, and what I'm going to say is vital for you to hear. God has waited 400 years, y'all. 
when the word of God says that Jesus Christ opened his mouth and began to teach, Matthew is saying, y'all, for 400 years, God has stayed silent. And for the first time in 400 years, he isn't delivering his message through a prophet. He isn't delivering his message through a mortal man. He isn't delivering his message through a hired hand, nobody else. God himself has come down to deliver this message. God is saying, I have something to say, y'all. Listen and do it, right? Can you feel the weight of this? Y'all, it, it, you know, we, we, get, we get mixed up. We, we, we get this idea, you know, it, it talks all the time in the Gospels about how the crowds were amazed because Jesus taught with such authority. And so there's this weird teaching that gets mixed in there that Jesus is teaching this new teaching, right? It's this, oh, it's this new revelation and these new things that no one's ever heard. That's not true. Y'all, that is not true. And Jesus Christ himself tells us that's not true. Because what's Jesus say? He says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not to abolish them, right? Jesus is drastic, like so consistent with Scripture. The reason people recognize that there was a different authority is because this is the Word of God. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, become flesh, who is explaining the Word of God to them in a way like they've never heard it before. But make no mistake, we've, we have itching ears today. Our culture, maybe more than any other culture, we, we, we crave knowledge like nothing else. And so we run to books and podcasts and every source of information we could possibly find because we want new information, right? And people sell their books because, oh, I have this new insight. If you take these Hebrew letters and you pull out the sixth letter of every sentence in this book and you add them up and it means God's coming back September 3rd of 2024. Mark it on your calendars. What? Y'all, if there is this supernatural insight out there that is so vital for us to have, don't you think God would have put it in here for us to see? The character of the God I serve, he's not a tricky God that's trying to like keep people out of heaven. You know, he's not like, Jeremy, I have this life-saving, this soul-saving information, but I'm not going to give it to you. No, nah, I'm, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to make you dig through and cut pieces out and paste them together. It's like national treasure, right? Indiana Jones, we've got to put the puzzle together and figure it. Stop. Sometimes we've got to stop going after all of this crazy insight and just do what Jesus actually says. Y'all, if the church just did what Jesus said and stopped chasing after all of this knowledge, pff, the church would be on fire right now. But we are so obsessed with looking smart to the world. So we run after all of these things. Jesus Christ wasn't teaching anything new. You know, if you, if you talk to anybody familiar with the Jewish rabbinical teachings of that time, there were a lot of rabbis who were teaching very similar things to what Jesus did. You know, we look at the gospel and when Jesus says, oh, you know, when your enemy slaps you on the face, just turn the other cheek. Right? That's, that was a fairly common teaching by not every rabbi, not all of them, but by rabbis of that time. Because, guys, it's in the Old Testament. This isn't new stuff that Jesus is pulling out of the air, but it is with a new authority. Because this is God himself delivering this message. 
God himself speaking to the people. You better believe everybody on that mountain knew full well that this message that was about to come had a weight that nobody was ready for. I believe with all of my heart. Y'all, I I mean, honestly, if I walked outside, I'll go to the BG Walmart, okay? If I walked outside and I got a little soapbox and I stood up on it, you think thousands of people are going to gather around me and start listening to what I say? Not a chance, right? Y'all, thousands of people are gathering around Jesus to listen to what he's about to say. There was something or someone moving and gathering all of these people. And when Jesus opened his mouth, it was like a haymaker that nobody had ever felt before. That prophecy from Malachi, when God said, y'all, I am coming. This day of the Lord, this kingdom of mine is coming, and it is going to hit you like a freight train. And for those of you who fear me, it's going to be the best day of your life. But for those of you who don't, it is going to bury you. That's the hammer that Jesus is coming with, y'all. That's the hammer that Jesus is still coming with. And if you read it the way that the original hearers and readers, you feel it, don't you? Right? Y'all, I'm not pulling on your heartstrings. I'm not trying to. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate you to be like, ooh, this is great, tingly and goosebumps, right? I don't care about that. But y'all, get ready for it because the word of God still has power. It still has the power it had back then, but we've got to know what it's saying. We've got to know what's going on. And when we recognize that, we can see, all right, Jesus, buckle my seatbelt because here we go. This is going to be a ride. And God breaks his silence with this message which means we have to ask. If this is the message, what's the purpose, right? If Jesus is delivering a message, any good public speaker, anybody who's ever sat through public speaking classes or, you know, writing classes when you write a paper in high school, whatever, you've got to have a purpose, right? You've got to have an aim. It is so frustrating. You guys ever been in a situation at work or whatever where you know, you're, you're with somebody and it's, it's like they have absolutely no purpose to what they do and you just kind of float around and you're like, oh, yay. And they're like, hey, guys, let's celebrate. We just had a success. It's like, what, what, what did we do? Well, we, were, we, we talked to that person and we said we were going to talk to a person today, remember? No, right? And it's frustrating, isn't it? Because there's no aim. There's no purpose to anything. God broke 400 years of silence, and you better believe he had a purpose to it. Now, there's an omnious tone here. That's a good word, isn't it? Omnious. I like that word. But there's an omnious tone to these beatitudes, to these blessings. If you don't see it, you're not paying attention. Omnious just means like kind of like a foreboding dark cloud, right? Like when you look at the sky and you say, oh, shoot, we better get inside, right? That's kind of what it's like when you look at the Beatitudes. There's an element of, I better duck for cover here, God. Because the things that God is calling blessed don't sound like blessings, right? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I don't want to do that. (laughs) God, if that's what you call blessing, like... (laughs) 
I'm going to go back to those blessings you have in Deuteronomy because I like those ones a little bit better, right? But that's what God calls blessing. Now, depending on where you are in the world depends on whether or not you see those as blessings. Y'all, I don't think we realize how good we have it in the United States sometimes. Some of us do, but I think we need to a lot more often than we do. Because part of the reason we hit these beatitudes like it's a brick wall or we over-spiritualize them away and, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'm poor in spirit. I go to church a lot, right? We, we brush those things away is because we have so much. Oh, Pastor, I don't have that much. Yeah, you don't have that much because you're looking at these billionaires with yachts and owners of Amazon and all this stuff who have way more than you. That's what we do to make ourselves feel better, right? But, but as a nation speaking, we have more than, than half of, probably over half of the world, 90% of the world, whatever. I, don't, I didn't do my research, sorry. We are very well off here, right? We don't realize that until a passage like the Beatitudes comes along and smacks us in the face and wakes us up a little bit, right? Especially when you read this teaching from the book of Luke, because Luke doesn't mince words. He just says, blessed are the poor. Good luck over-spiritualizing that. Right? Blessed are those who mourn. He just shoots straight for it. Blessed are those who suffer now, for their reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven. But God, I really like my vacations. But God, I like, I mean, after a hard day, I like getting in my hot tub right? But that's not what Jesus calls blessed. I know that nobody ever really pays attention to these, but I, I make all of our little PowerPoint slides. I make these slides, and I'm always very deliberate about the images that I choose. You like that one? Isn't it nice? I'm sure all of my graphic design friends who are looking at it are like, Jeremy, you've done it again, and not in a good way. But here's the thing. This is the perfect image for the Beatitudes. Because in a way, there's a beauty to the blessing, right? But in the same way, there's a brokenness that has to come with this beauty. All through Scripture, y'all, this is not just the Beatitudes. There is a brokenness that comes with the beauty of God. And that brokenness is that we must be broken first before God is willing to make us beautiful. And this gets twisted in today's church, y'all. Because there's a lot of today's church that teaches that you are beautiful first, and then God just kind of supplements that beauty. That's not Scripture, y'all. Scripture says you are a monster. You are broken beyond repair. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life to make you beautiful. And if you come to him, he will put the pieces back together the way they were supposed to be. And you will be made perfectly in his image. And that's the aim of all of this, y'all. That's the aim of the entire Bible. Is that we would see our brokenness, embrace it, and come to him to put us back together. And when God puts us back together, he doesn't put us back together like Jeremy 2.0, right? He puts us back together like Jesus. He makes us look like Jesus. And this is actually how Matthew, Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, ends chapter 5. Look at this call, y'all. 
and try your best to do this in your own strength. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is our aim. Nothing short, y'all. Be perfect as God is perfect. And if you think you can do that on your own, I want whatever you're drinking. We can't, right? This is part of that being broken. I have to realize, God, I, are you kidding me? The people who take that first step into the kingdom of heaven are not the people who say, all right, Jesus, let's go. Bring it on, perfection, I got this. Nope, you're not walking the gospel yet. The people who take the first step into the kingdom are the people who say, God, I can't do that. Right, like that man in Mark 9, when Jesus says, I'll heal your son, all you gotta do is believe. And the man cries out, God, Jesus, I, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Jesus, I will give you everything I have got, but I know it's not enough. But I trust that you can get me the rest of the way. Y'all, that's a step into the kingdom. That's a step towards this aim that God is asking us to walk in, and it is consistent, y'all. Again, this is not a new teaching. This standard, God's standard, never changed. We've talked about this before, but lots of times we look at Jesus' teaching. Look at, look at how Jesus ups the ante. Y'all, I've taught that before. I repent in sackcloth and ash because it's not true. Right? Jesus doesn't up anything because if Jesus upped the ante, that means that God's law at the beginning wasn't good enough, that the standard needs to be higher. And that's not what happens. But Jesus explains it for the first time the way it was meant to be taught, right? He shows us. He pulls back the veil and says, oh, you've been aiming down here. God wants you up here, right? When we gave you this law, right, when we gave you this law, it was meant to be lived up here. You were meant to be perfect. And look what it says. Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Deuteronomy 18.13, You are to be blameless before the Lord your God. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, it doesn't change, y'all. And you can find more examples than just those. That's a snapshot. All through Scripture, we are called to be exactly like God. That's the bar. He is the bar. The aim is God himself. Nothing more, right? Now, we know this. This gets hammered on a lot. We can't, it's never the gospel plus, right? Not the gospel plus good deeds. Not, not the gospel plus. It's not God plus. Well, yeah, we're, we're like God, and then we do some other things. No, nothing more. The aim is God himself. Well, yeah, but we got to do good. The aim is God himself and nothing less. Well, Pastor, I could never do that. That's the point. 
This isn't self-help church. This isn't self-help religion. This isn't, you know, checklists and do it yourself and you can get there if you just apply these practical steps. That's not what this is. This is complete and utter surrender. God, you have to get me there because he is the goal. And guess what, y'all? If God himself is the aim, then guess what the blessing is? It's not a question, right? When Jesus gives us these beatitudes, the reason they don't look like a blessing to us is because we aren't close enough to God. We don't know enough of his character. We don't know who he is. I would probably venture to say we're living a little too much for this kingdom here on this earth than we are for his kingdom. That's why it doesn't look like a blessing. There's that great quote, I've quoted it many times, I've gotten away from it recently, but by the Puritan minister John Owen, who says, my goal is God himself, at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. Y'all, will you let the Holy Spirit do a little painful digging in your life? Because I, I, I've talked about this a little bit. I think uh, Wednesday night we were doing a home group with uh, Kurt, and Lexa at Kurt and Lexa's house. And I, I talked a little bit about this. But when I write these sermons, I always get the conviction probably like two or three days before you all get it. <laughs> right? So I have a little head start on you. I should be running the race <laughs> before you all get to the starting line sometimes. But when I hit this, y'all, I, I have fallen short of this. That quote from John Owen, I love that quote, and that, I'm not, that quote's not scripture, it's not, you know, you know Holy Spirit inspired, it falls under scripture, and thankfully it does fall under scripture, right? Checks the authority check, because that's what all of scripture says. But y'all, I have relaxed my life on this. I have relaxed my standards on this. There was a time when I ran after God, and that quote summarized my walk with him. My goal is God himself at any cost, dear Lord, and by any road. And doggone, y'all, sometimes it's when he strips everything away that that becomes easy, right? Because there was a time in my life when it's like, I don't got nothing left for you to take, (laughs) right? My goal is God himself because doggone, everything else is gone, right? Don't get me wrong, Lord, there's plenty more to take. (laughs) Not a challenge right? But, but I've gotten away from it. And, and I, I, this is the trap I fall in every time, y'all. I'm not putting this on any of you, but some of you are like me. I get so task-focused. And y'all, running a church is very easy to get task-focused. Fo- ta- what did I just say? It's very easy to get task-focused, right? There it is. It's very easy because there's always something to do. And I talked about this last week, right? God keeps convicting me. Jeremy, when are you going to get it through your skull so we can move on to a new message? Right? But it's so easy when God says, I am enough. Jeremy, I don't need you to do stuff for me. I just need you to be with me. Right? And when you're with me, we'll go do stuff together. But you're running all over the place like a chicken with your head cut off trying to do, do, do for me like a little kid, right? And all I want is to be your all in all. 
Guys, this is what God wants more than anything. For us to finally throw it all down, throw everything down, and to say, God, you are my goal. Not you plus this great promotion. Not you plus popularity on this earth. Not you plus a bigger pulpit. Not you plus more people in the church. Not you plus whatever it is. But God, you are my goal. And whatever it costs to get you, I'm game. Whatever road it takes, however much suffering I have to walk through, whatever I have to give up to show you, God, that you are all I want, I sign that line. I'm done doing it my way. The blessing is God. The aim is God. The goal is God. And y'all, until we get that through our thick skulls, this book is never going to make sense to us. We will always run after people who twist the scriptures to make it say what we want it to say. We'll always twist them ourselves to make it say what we need it to say. We'll hit these beatitudes and teachings like this from Jesus and we'll shoo them away because they show us a reality that we aren't ready to see. But when we finally realize that God, because guys, look, I mean, look at what happens here. Can, do you see the danger in the Beatitudes if you remove God? If you take God away from the Beatitudes, look at this. I made it easy for you to see. Wasn't that nice? This is just, this is just the good stuff in the Beatitudes, right? Jesus says, blessed are dot, 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 and then you get a reward, right? You do this, you get a reward, right? So these are, the, these, are, these are what you get. You get the kingdom of heaven. You get to be comforted. You get to inherit the earth. You get to be satisfied. You'll receive mercy. You'll see God. You'll be called sons of God. You'll get the kingdom of heaven. Your reward will be great. But do you see what happens if we take God away? If you pull God out of these things? Guys, can I tell you, the kingdom of heaven, if God's not there, is literally hell, right? Because heaven, the reason it's heaven is because God is there. You are sitting in the presence of the almighty God. Hell is hell because you're cast out. You know, there's the lake of fire and brimstone and, you know, the devil's going to be whipping you with things and who cares? I, who cares? Because the pain that comes from hell is the fact that you have seen your perfect father and you've been told, but you didn't choose me. And you are robbed of that presence. Not robbed, it was a choice that you made, right? But, but you're cast out of his presence. That's hell. That's the torment. Is that God isn't there. So look, you can have your endless buffets and ice cream bars. But if God's not there, y'all, I don't want to be there. Right? You take God out of any of these things. There is no comfort outside of God. Some of you all have been offered comfort outside of God, haven't you? When you're suffering, when you're going through something and somebody tries to give you comfort outside of God, it's miserable. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't comfort you. Take God out of the earth. <laughs> you kind of see it now, don't you? 
I mean, imagine what would happen if the Holy Spirit was like, I'm done, y'all. Took off. Time's coming when that will happen. Right? Can you imagine? Is this earth even worth inheriting if God's not here? I don't think so. I don't want this, y'all. Right? There's no satisfaction outside of God. There's no mercy outside of God. You can't see God outside of God. Right? All of these things are dependent upon God being in them. And if he's not in them, they're not worth it. Like everything else. God, do you see it? One by one, and I promise you, if you go through and you look at the things that you are running after right now in this life, if I take time and I sit down and I look at the things that I am running after in this life, if you take God out of it, it's not worth it. One by one, those dominoes start to fall. And I think a lot of us, we get in that mode when that starts to happen. We try to hold them up, don't we? Has anybody have ever had an idol crash on you? It's hard, isn't it? Because you realize how much of your life you have poured into this thing that's not God. And the greatest thing God could give you is he causes those idols to fall. And I have seen it, y'all. I have done it. I've seen it in friends. I still see it in some friends trying so desperately to hold up these idols in their life. And God's got to be up there saying, just let it fall. But it's kind of like the Pharisees and Jesus, right? The Pharisees built up this idol of Judaism, of serving God in their religion. And when Jesus came around and said, guys, you're not doing it right. He said, who are you to tell us? Well, <laughs> it's kind of all about me, but you know. And they refused. They wouldn't come to him because their, the kingdom they had built was too important to them. They said, God, I'd rather have my kingdom than to give it up to inherit yours. We have got to get this right, y'all. There is no blessing outside of God. He is our blessing. And if he himself is our blessing, and look, y'all, not our greatest blessing, right? Not your greatest blessing, your blessing, period. Then he must be our only goal. He must be our only aim. Our entire life must revolve around him this y'all this is this is like the burden of my heart this is the fire that god lit under me a long time ago and i have let that fire die but it's back because y'all this is labeled as radical christianity today this teaching in the united states is radical christianity i have had i've told you all this before i have had pastors tell me that this is too extreme Guys, this is Jesus' teaching. This isn't something that I made up. Guys, if I was going to make something up, I'd make it a whole lot easier to follow because it'd get more people, right? More people equals more money. Come on, y'all. 
right? We could buy a new massive building and cars and things. Yeah. (laughs) But y'all, this is Jesus's teaching. And it gets labeled as radical today. Right? And it is radical. Let's let's be fair. (laughs) It is radical. But Jesus taught nothing less. And y'all, Jesus didn't just teach it, right? It wasn't like the Pharisees. He He told his followers, right? Do what the Pharisees say, but don't do what they do. Because they're not interested in doing what they teach. But Jesus set the standard, y'all. Jesus didn't just teach it. This is what Jesus lived. The radical life of Jesus literally changed the world. And not just this world, but the entire universe, the entire cosmos, yours and my eternity. Guys, when has anyone in human history ever changed anything by being safe and comfortable. Look at Joe. He sacked the entire Roman Empire and all he did was sit on his couch and watch television. It doesn't happen, right? If you want to change the world, you have got to take the radical step it takes. And in our case, y'all, that's the radical step of obedience. Gospel House, we have to count the cost. Jesus himself tells you, count the cost before you follow me. Because being a disciple of Jesus requires that we live up to his standard. He will accept nothing less. That should be heavy. Be broken in this world, be persecuted and yet make peace with everyone. Be pure of heart, extend mercy, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be meek, even though you have the power of God at your disposal. Mourn and be completely emptied of yourself. Stop living for your kingdom on this earth and start living for his kingdom heavenly kingdom gospel house if god is our aim if we make god our sole purpose in this life he has given us the holy spirit to make sure that we never miss guys do you know how sure a thing this is but he requires that we make that decision we have got to decide and set our aim on him and him alone. Church, I am standing before you today and declaring to you, my goal is God himself at any cost, dear Lord, and by any road. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are everything, God. And we are so thankful that you have given us this glorious gospel. That we have the words of life. 
But Father God, I pray that we would view these words as what they are, as the words of life, as heavy commands, Lord God, of how we live for your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that this would be more than just a sermon series. God, that this would be more than just a typical teaching on a Sunday morning. And, and I can't do that, God. I can say what you've told me to say. I can do what you've told me to do. I can put it all out there. But Holy Spirit, unless you take hold of this, of my heart, and of the hearts of everyone who hear these words, it all falls short. God, help us to set our aim on you. To add nothing to it to make you our goal and nothing else. Not popularity in this world, not, not things of this world, nothing else. Not things of heaven, not blessings in heaven, not riches in heaven, but just you, God. Help us to set you as our goal. Help us to make you our aim, Father. To let everything else go. And Holy Spirit, we know that you will be faithful to run with us, to give us the strength to follow you, to speak to us and tell us where to go and tell us what to do if we will just let go and fall into your hands. Father God, I pray you find a congregation this morning of people ready to fall into your hands and to declare together that our goal is you. And whatever it costs, we are willing to pay that price because you have already paid everything for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.